When someone begins to question their faith, the last thing church leaders want to do is say the wrong thing or handle it in a way that will further push them away. With so many historical concerns or doctrinal questions, what is a leader supposed to do? I'm happy to report that Leading Saints is here to help with the Questioning Saints Library. This is a full library of 20 plus presentations related to how to minister to an individual who is questioning their faith. We cover topics like how to answer tough questions, maintaining relationships when someone leaves the church, and how to embrace doctrinal ambiguity. If you want to review all the sessions from the Questioning Saints Library at no cost for 14 days, simply go to leadingsaints.org 14. That's leadingsaints.org 14. While you're at it, we'll give you access to all of our virtual libraries that cover several leadership-related topics. So click the link in the show notes or simply visit leadingsaints.org 14. All right, let's go around the room, do some introductions. I'll start. So my name is Kurt Frankham. I am the executive director of Leading Saints, which is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. And we are dedicated, you know, have a mission here to help Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. Now, me personally, I live in Stansbury Park, Utah, which is in Tooele County. I grew up in West Valley City and I've been running Leading Saints really since 2010 when it started out as a hobby blog. 2014 is when the podcast started, and now we are over 10 million downloads. And uh, man, we're glad that you are now one of those downloads. Let's jump in. Let's get into this podcast interview. I'm excited to introduce to you Emily Robison Adams, who is the author of the book Divine Quietness, Finding Meaning When Heaven is Silent. And we talk about some phenomenal concepts here mainly based around her personal story, which she wrote the book about, of when it felt like heaven stopped talking to her. God was silent. She did the prayers. She did the pleading. She did the fasting. But nonetheless, it was just quiet, and she didn't know what to do with it. And it led her into depression, led her into uh, questioning her faith and what she believed. And we approach this from a leadership standpoint. What can a leader do when it feels like an individual they're leading is not getting answers to their prayers? And of course, I bring in the concept of what about the leader? What if you are the leader and you're not getting revelation? I mean, here you are trying to run a war, trying to run a quorum, a relief society, whatever it is. You don't feel like God is in it. Like he's not telling you what to do. What do you do with that? And so we talk about the mental health uh, dynamics that happen in maybe a, a faith crisis, how to spot somebody who's struggling with their faith. How to encourage somebody without giving a, a fix-it response of, oh, just read this book, just do this thing. How to sit with them and encourage them and actually be of service to them as they're, they're wrestling with their faith. Just a phenomenal discussion. This book is a brand new book just out in, in March of 2023. I strongly encourage you to check it out. It's a quick read, but so helpful and one that you'll definitely give to others. And I have no doubt there's so many, many listening to this podcast right now who will resonate with her story, that it will sound a lot like your story. So listen in. Today on the podcast, we have Emily Robison Adams, the author of Divine Quietness, Finding a Meaning When Heaven is Silent. Emily, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me here, Kurt. Oh, this is, I'm so excited I, I, uh, to have this interview because it's always fun to read a book, but it's even more fun when you get to talk to the author right after you read the book and yeah. <laughs> and ask all the questions that maybe are, are lingering in my mind or floating around. So this is really cool. Maybe just give us a, a little bit of background of who you are, where you live, uh, whatever else you think is important for the audience to know. I live in Utah. I have a husband and three kids, ages six to 13. So we're just figuring out what teenagerhood looks like, and that's exciting. Uh, I'm an appellate attorney. I practice at a firm called the Appellate Group, and we work on appeals to the Utah Supreme Court and the Utah Court of Appeals. And like you said, I just wrote a book. Desert Book is publishing my book in March of 2023. And it's about, I'd like to call it my epic faith crisis that I had back in 2020, where I felt that God completely left and went silent. And it was a really hard space in 2020. And in 2021, I sat down and said, well, I need to either figure this out or I need to leave God altogether. And so I decided to sit down for half an hour every morning before I started work and I would just write. And six months later, I had 
Divine Quietness. I got a manuscript. Wow. That's awesome. So and at that point, does, uh, you had the manuscript done and then you approached Desert Book about publishing? Yeah, I, I actually just submitted it to its slush pile. You know, you oh, have wow. an online submission form and just sent it out into the ether. And they gave me a call about four months later and said that they would like to get it through the process. And you have to go through a kind of a long process to yeah. get it approved. But yeah, that was the process. Well, I'm so glad I got approved. And it's it's not a it's not a really thick book that, you know, a, a marathon book. I mean, people can sit down and, and consume it in, in a day or so. I mean, it, it's a hundred pages. Yeah. yeah hundred pages. Short. So really cool. So let's just jump into your story then and we'll find maybe some crossroads of where leadership ends up here and, and some things that leaders can learn from your experience, whatnot. But where would you say like your, you know, quote unquote faith crisis started or was there a moment? Was it gradual? Uh, what comes to mind? I think it was more of a straw that broke the camel's back, to be honest mm. with you. For several years leading up to January of 2020, I had struggled with the idea that I just couldn't seem to get answers to direct questions that I asked God. So, you know, we always, I think it's pretty typical. You ask God, you know, who you should marry, whether you should go to school, all these things. And with the exception of one question, I never got any answers. And for about a decade and a half, I was like, well, maybe I'm just asking these questions wrong. Maybe I'm just not good at this. But when President Nelson back in 2018 said that it was, you know, having, what did he say? that it would not be possible to spiritually survive without the guiding influence of the Holy Ghost. Yeah. In my mind, I thought, oh my gosh, I need to figure out how to get direct answers from God. Like I need to figure out how I can get him to respond to direct questions, especially if you know we're thinking about a coming day when there's going to be a lot of confusion. I need to be able to pray to God and say, hey, is this right? And God can tell me, you know, up or down, yes or no. Yeah. So was so, this in the context of like like some big life decisions you were wrestling with, or was it more just the day-to-day promptings and things that you were seeking? You know, it was more of that in my callings, in my work, in my life, there were so many times when I said, you know, I would really like to get God's input on what to do about this particular situation, mm-hmm. whether I should, you know, and some of them were big, like, you know, should I have a child now? Should I go to law school? Should I marry Lucas? Should I, you know, all these other things. Then some of them were a little bit smaller in my callings, like who should we call as a beehive president? And, you know, what should I focus on in this particular lesson I'm giving? So I think it was just a slow buildup over time. And so at the end of 2019, I was like, you know, I really need to figure this out. This feels really important to me. And so I decided that I would ask God a question that I would kind of create this process. And if I crack the code for this process, if I figured out how to get him to answer one question, then maybe I could figure out how to have him answer other questions. So I decided that I would ask him the question about whether the Book of Mormon was true. And I had certainly asked that question lots and lots of times, had never gotten an answer. And I thought, that's a good question to ask because our missionaries ask conference that question all the time. And it doesn't seem like it's infringing on anybody's agency. It's not like a big, I'm not asking for the world to change. I'm just asking for like a confirmation about whether this book is true. So I read the entire Book of Mormon in six weeks time. And in January of 2020, I knelt down and I prayed. And I got nothing and I kept on praying and I got nothing. And it just slowly turned into suddenly I felt that there was nothing. Like there was no God, there was no spirit, there was nothing. And it's hard to describe, but it just felt like God completely disappeared. Yeah. And that's where the faith crisis happened. (laughs) Yeah. And was it uh, something that, I mean, what did it look like day to day? Was it something you were talking to your husband about or did you stop going to church? Did you, I mean, what, what, how did it manifest in your life? Yeah. So I think it took me a really long time to figure out how I was feeling. I think one thing about a crisis that makes it different than just something hard that happens is that a crisis dismantles your framework for how you've, you know, the story that you tell about your life. It just completely gets rid of it. And so you're grieving not only this thing that's hard, but you're grieving the loss of this story that you've built your entire life. And so the story that I built about God being this loving, involved, responsive being, you know, suddenly was gone. And I think it took me a long time to figure out that that framework was gone. But it resulted in a pretty significant depression and then a really significant anxiety. And I certainly had felt depression before in my life, but I had never experienced anxiety. And it was terrifying. So I walked around feeling incredibly sad and then incredibly afraid that God would require something extreme of me for him to come back. Kind of like this Abrahamic sacrifice type of thing. Oh, wow. And it was just a really hard time because I couldn't articulate why I was feeling the way I was. I didn't talk to my husband about it for a long time because I just didn't understand. But 
you know, it took me about probably four months to talk with him and then probably a couple months after that to open up to other people, to my parents and then to a few, like a very small group, like on one hand, people that I talked to about it. But what was interesting is that the it was COVID and in Utah, when COVID happened, they shut down all the churches in March of 2020 and then said, you do at-home sacrament meeting, don't do anything else. And our word was, you know, pretty strictly adhered to that. And so I think it was about March when I was beginning to say, I don't know if I can do church anymore. This is really, really hard. You know, mm. it's hard to go to the church and feel like you're getting beat up from the podium. I just felt horrible being in, being in the chapel and just yeah. going to classes and things. Um, and when you but, say like beat up from the podium, I mean, is it those things like you'd hear other people talk about their answers to prayer and that would just bring more shame on, on you? Yeah. So there are a couple of things. I think that Sundays were a time where I felt close to God in my prayer life, mm. you know, that there were times when I would pray to God and say, I'd really like to feel the spirit today and I'd feel the spirit in church and it was great. So it was a time when it just, I think it was the contrast between feeling so close to God on Sundays and now feeling nothing. It was just, it was really hard. And then sometimes you'd go and frankly, all the talks were well-meaning and wonderful. But sometimes when you're in a space of doubt and disillusionment, that when people get up and say, I know the church is true and I, I prayed and I got all these answers and you're just like, I must just be defective. I must be a horrible person. Mm. <laughs> and I'm not seeing how their God is my God and does God even exist? And yeah, it was just, a, yeah. it was a hard time. Yeah, this points out, man, a few dynamics come to mind, but just this, the, I know that, you know, the, <laughs> I relate to your experience in, in various ways, but there are individuals and bless their hearts. I mean, I don't know what, what they were born with and we all have different spiritual gifts, right? But, you know, I have friends that they'll tell me experiences of like everyday things of my prayed and sought direction and immediately this, this prompting came. And I don't for one minute doubt that they're over. I have no doubt that they experience that, but it just seems like for others that, you know, I'm just like, man, I, I mean, I, I haven't felt that for a while or, and in the leadership context, there's this feeling of suddenly you're the bishop and you're, you have to call a primary president and, you know, you've heard the stories of the bishop getting together, submitting names. And then there's this one name and comes to the surface and you pray about it. And you just have this feeling. And, but for a lot of leaders, like, I don't know, we just picked a primary print. Like there wasn't right. this like heavenly moment per se, but then you suddenly feel shame. Like, maybe I'm doing this wrong, right? Like maybe I don't know how to connect with the divine or, and it's that shame that sort of piles up that it becomes uh, a catalyst to further doubt at times, right? Yeah. Oh, that's absolutely right. And I think it's important. I think there are those that have this really close connection with God in that way yeah. that they ask and God answers. And that's fantastic. But for some of us, our relationship looks a little bit different and it requires stretching some different muscles. Yeah. And I want just your experience, like, Notice at this point, like when you think of faith crisis, it's like, ah, uh, it was, it was Joseph Smith's polygamy, wasn't it? Or, you know, the Kirtland Banking Society, like you came across some information or like sometimes we default to these historic concerns and maybe that, that played a role there. But this was just simply a, I was trying to apply the gospel in my life, how I'm generally taught the gospel. And it seemed like it wasn't working. And so I assumed I was broken or something was wrong. Right, right. right. Uh, there was a Faith Matters conference this summer. You were at it. And yeah. um, Jared Halverson had this graph of like, what are you struggling with in your faith crisis? And first it was like policies and it was history and it was Book of Mormon and then like prophets. And then the bottom was God. Like, do you remember this? He said, how yeah, yeah. deep is your struggle going? Mm -hmm. And my struggle went straight to God. <laughs> like, yeah. It was, I was pretty aware of a lot of the historical stuff. And I always thought that, you know, if this is a church that's led by God, you know, there's a lot of humans involved. They're going to make a lot of mistakes. And that's mm -hmm. okay. Mm -hmm. But it only really, you can only really cover that up if there's a God that's good, that's in charge of it all. And with my experience, I felt that suddenly God either didn't exist or was horrible and arbitrary mm -hmm. and wrathful. And if, if God wasn't good, then nothing mattered. The church didn't matter. Joseph Smith didn't matter. Book of Mormon didn't matter. Nothing mattered if God wasn't good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and so many times I hear like, I mean, obviously the church is, uh, you know, as an institution, they're putting out remarkable resources when it comes to doctrinal concerns, theology concerns, you know, historic concerns. And sometimes I'm, you know, from a leader standpoint, I think it's easy for leaders to say, okay, I just really need to go read some books and really make sure I can point people in the right way to answer these questions. But a lot of the time, it's not like you're lacking the answer to a specific question. It's more of like, I'm trying this I understand this gospel as a certain model and that model's not working for me. 
And so it's more of like, if the leader just learns to know how to sit with that person and encourage them without feeling like, okay, well, we'll, we'll figure this out. Like, you know, I guess it's easy to see this as something to fix rather than, wow, you're having a hard time now. And like, tell me more about your experience, right? That's right. And I thought my leaders, I mean, I never went and talked to my bishop about what was happening, but I was a Relief Society teacher at the time that this whole thing happened. And although there was a period of about seven or eight months where we weren't having any Relief Society lessons at all, my Relief Society presidents, um, there were two of them, were aware of what was happening and were willing to just let me stay in my calling, which I really mm. appreciated. I know that that might not be the right solution for everybody, but but it was really good for me to, you know, after I got over the first, I think probably about 10 months of just really awful, icky, feeling terrible, I began to get some help with my depression and anxiety. And I was able to begin to kind of re-engage with my spiritual questions. Because when your brain is so sad and so fearful that you just can't really engage with these deeper questions. And once I was willing to engage with those again, having to teach a Relief Society lesson every week or once a month was actually really good for me because made me go back to these general conference talks and find things that I could talk about and get myself in a space where I could talk about these principles in a genuine way. And I was definitely not of the mindset that I should be like happy and, you know, like be like, this is amazing. I'm all about teaching genuine, you know, teaching really study lessons from a place of authenticity and genuineness. And my really study presence were okay with that. And it was remarkable and it was really, really good for me. We sometimes, uh, you know, turn these experiences, you know, when people quote unquote leave the church or start to doubt, we make a caricature out of them. You know, we make broad assumptions and whatnot. And it seems like a lot of people go to bitterness and cynicism, right? They're just sitting in church with their arms full of things. This is, this is ridiculous. This is a circus. You know, I can't believe these people are saying this. They believe this way. If they knew what I knew, like, did you feel any of that like bitterness or cynicism come up? Yeah, I absolutely did. You know, and it's hard for a long time when you, when we, we've talked about doubts is often something that's fearful and something that you mm-hmm. shouldn't be doing. And so I had these doubts and I didn't know what to do with them. And they just fester. <laughs> they just yeah. fester. But I read this book by Brian McLaren called Faith After Doubt. And you also have uh, James Fowler's Stages of Faith. Yeah. that You did a podcast on, I think, three or four years ago. That was really yeah. fantastic. And those frameworks help you look at doubt as actually helpful to faith that doubt can help you kind of clear out some of your unhelpful thinking about God. It can help expose some of your assumptions that you're making about your faith and about God. And, you know, it can really help you think more deeply about your faith. And so I certainly was in the, I was certainly was in bitterness and McLaren calls that the perplexity stage that you're in this place where nothing makes sense and it's all horrible. But McLaren talks about that if you can turn your doubts away from God and towards your understanding of God, then you can slowly work through them and you can get to a place where you can be in harmony. And that was really, really helpful to me because, Mm. you know, then my doubts didn't end up being like the end point. They were just something on the path towards a faith that was richer and fuller and more mature. Yeah. And this concept of frameworks, and, and you title a chapter "Rethinking," which I think is so powerful and, and crucial to you know ministering to anybody going through sort of this the, you know quote unquote faith crisis. Because it's it's you know when the heavens go quiet, it's easy to assume okay God's not there or He doesn't care about me or this whole religious model doesn't work because I've been learning about this whole you know pray and you know personal revelation since I was in nursery and it's obviously not working or it's broken. I'm broken, right? You make mm-hmm. these assumptions. And then you now, and those assumptions create a framework that you approach life. And we do this in every, every dynamic, whether it's our marriage or our our job or our our religious experience, it's just the way our, our mind works, right? As our brain is trying to understand things. So unpack this concept of of rethinking and how it can be a tool for leaders to uh, an individual going through a a time where they feel like they they got a silent. So we, like, like you said, we just have these stories and these frameworks that we build out about our lives and about our religious experience. And oftentimes they're invisible to us. Like I think that they were pretty invisible to me until they run into something that they can't explain. And then the frameworks collapse. And at that point you have to figure out what to do. And I love the concept of rethinking of, you know, we need to take a really close look of what our thoughts are, what the stories are we're telling ourselves, why they didn't work. And then move from there to build something that's maybe closer to reality. And then once you've built that thing, not hold on to it so tight that it will collapse again, but realize that you're probably going to have to rebuild and rebuild and reformulate for the rest of your life. 
for me, rethinking was really crucial to getting through it. I had to really take a close look at kind of what were the things that were causing me so much pain? What were the thoughts I had where the quietness from God made this whole experience so incredibly painful? But it took me a while to get there. And I think that in the book, I talk about having periods of hardening and softening, Mm -hmm. that there were periods where I wasn't willing to even accept that God had gone quiet. And there were times where I wasn't willing to accept that God could be loving and quiet. I just wasn't willing to think about anything else. And a lot of that stemmed from the fact that I was feeling some pretty significant depression and anxiety. You know, my brain was pretty muddled. And I talk about in the book how I I got some professional help. I went and saw a therapist. I went and I um, got some medication. And those two things got my brain in a space where it was a little bit more flexible. And once it was more flexible, I could begin to pick my thoughts up and recognize what they were and question them, hold them more gently. And if they weren't something that was helpful, I could let them go. But it was, you know, when I began to think about rethinking, it was just like, this is actually a really crucial part of our entire lives. This is a really, you know, we see this in the scientific method. We see this in the scriptures. We see this everywhere. But for some reason, it it felt like a new concept to me when, when God went quiet. It took me a while to get to a point where I was willing to look at my ideas again and look at them afresh and figure out whether I should keep them, revise them, or completely let them go. Yeah. So give us an example of maybe some things you did, or, I mean, you talk about, you know, addressing the depression, anxiety, and and Mm -hmm. sort of you're to a place where maybe you can approach some of these frameworks and rethink them. Like, what did it look like? Was it reading more books? Was it just stepping back and thinking harder? Like, how did you, what did it actually look like in real life? Such a good question. So there are a couple points to it. First, I had, there were two people that I met in my life. Like right when I was speaking, like maybe eight or nine months into it, where I'd sent up some smoke signals and they figured out what was going on. And they came and talked to me and they said, I am feeling the same thing. And so being in a space where I could talk to people who were feeling something similar and we could say things out loud to each other. It's amazing how much stuff festers if you just hold it inside. But if you can say Mm -hmm. something out loud, sometimes you realize that it's kind of ridiculous and you can let it go. So I think having some people that were in the same boat and we were all trying to figure this out together really, really helped because you could someone who's in the same boat can push you differently than somebody who's not. So, you know, my husband, for example, got really good at, you know, if I was feeling really frustrated, he would say, is this a conversation where you want me to push? Or is this just a listening conversation? And I said, this is just a listening conversation. Uh Or I'm ready for you to push back a little bit. But sometimes it's easier to get pushback from somebody if you feel that they've, they've gone through the same experience you have, you know, because they have felt it. So that was really helpful. I read a lot of books. There was a point in time where I thought that if I just picked up the right book and like landed on the right thing, the one right thing, that it would solve my problem. Mm. And I realized pretty quickly that that wasn't a healthy way of approaching it. Most of the time with these types of crises, it takes a lot of things over a long period of time to get to a point where you're feeling a little bit better. But what I did is I read outside of our faith tradition quite a bit because I couldn't find it really much about quietness inside our faith tradition that was really helpful. Because you hadn't written your book yet, you know? (laughs) (laughs) There you go. go. So, I mean, I read a lot from the Catholics and they have this concept of the dark night of the soul that was really helpful. The Anglicans are fantastic. The Episcopalians are fantastic. I read a lot of Buddhist literature. And so it was really nice for me, you know, sometimes in Mormonism, we, we quote the same prophets over and over again and the same scripture. And, you know, we just kind of have our own little echo chamber. It was nice to step outside of it Mm. and say, what are other people saying about this issue? And it was lovely. I mean, there's so much good stuff out there because people have thought about this issue from a lot of different angles for a long time. I mean, St. John of the Cross, who came up with the dark night of the soul, it was in the 1500s. So the Catholics have thought about this for hundreds of years. And it was, I think, sometimes stepping out of your normal, like these are the kinds of books I read and just kind of widening your circle a bit can help with that rethinking process. Yeah, I, I love that advice because again, it wasn't that you went to some Catholic writer. He proposed that, you know, if you think of it, if you if you lean into the Trinity more, you know, this really will help your dad. Like it wasn't even, a, they weren't addressing theology or you're just think, you're just believing wrong. It was more of like that they're giving you a different framework of approaching God and hearing God and, and being being at peace with the quietness that you're going through. Right. And I truly believe there's light and goodness everywhere. I think God sprinkles wisdom everywhere. And so I think there's so much wisdom in all of these faith traditions, the Buddhists and the Catholics and the Anglicans and the Episcopalians. There's just so much goodness there. And there's so much we can draw from and learn from 
And they, frankly, I like to say that it wasn't wasn't the Mormons that kept me with God. It was the Catholics, <laughs> the Episcopalians, the Anglicans, yeah. the Buddhists, because they helped me feel seen. They helped me understand what I was going through. And once I could get a hold on that, then I could come back to Mormonism and say, okay, this is yeah. good. I can stay with God now and I can stay in this church now. Yeah. And again, this is sort of, you know, your story, what helped you and being an attorney, you like to read. I mean, I know that most attorneys yeah. love to read, <laughs> yeah. no, but, but I guess, I guess I don't want to create the perception that, yeah, you just need to get a good library books and, and throw books at them and they'll figure it out. But for you, that was sort of, that just worked for you, right? And, and understanding yeah. perspectives and things. But again, it's more mainly just how can I help an individual just rethink how they're categorizing things or framing things. Right. And I think, I think you can get to a point. I mean, there were points where I felt there was like reading overwhelm. And mm. so I just had to take a step back and just rest and just say, you know what, I'm just going to pause for a while. And I'm not going to inhale anything else. I'm just going to pause and breathe and be present. And so I think that there's a, you're right. I think that there's a lot of different ways that people can work their way through their crisis, whatever it looks like. For me, it did help to have a lot of different perspectives available and the reading really helped. But for others, it can look really different. It could look like going to a yoga class, honestly. It could look like hiking in the woods. It can look like finding a small group of people and, and talking with them openly. I mean, there's just so many different ways to get through it. And if somebody tells you there's just one way, they're probably trying to sell you something. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. No, it's true. And, you know, my personal experience, you talk about this concept of in the book about just scripture study, just sort of became empty, right? And and that's sort of the, the default answer we have in our faith tradition of, you know, times are tough or you're experiencing now, like jump in, you know, dive into the scriptures and, and immerse yourself, right? And I've had times in my life where I'm just like, man, it's just not connecting. Like I'm not, it's words on the page, right? And and I've told the story several times, but in summary, I had this experience where I kept going to the scriptures because I wanted to be a, a good Latter-day Saint boy. You know, that's just what you do. Like every, you know, every day you got to read the scriptures, right? And and yeah, it's important and it's blessed my life in, in so many ways. But at this time, it was almost as if God was coming to me with this message of like, like, Kurt, I'm, I'm not going to be in the scriptures anymore if you just keep going there to check a box. Like, I want a relationship with you, right? So so I'm taking, I'm removing scripture enjoyment from you. Like that's sort of the, the right. feeling I knew it was, I had a, a deep spiritual experience where that message came through clear. I'm like, oh, okay. I'm going to step back, rethink how I'm categorizing the scriptures in my life and then try again. And it's been such a blessing to find different ways to connect with God. Right. And to, you know, sometimes I don't need to sit down with the, you know, commentary by the side of the New Testament and break down every Greek translation or whatever. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I just, I need to go for a hike, right? I need to, mm -hmm. I need to be just quiet for a minute. I need to get off my phone for a while. I just need to sit in silence for 10 minutes. Like, like God will come at us in so many ways and, and we can't like keep it into a, a box that again, because that will default to, well, this is the equation, just plug and play. Here you go. Mm -hmm. I absolutely love that. And I think that's true for me too, that as I went through this quietness period, I had to realize that there were lots of ways of connecting with God. And it could be for me, hiking actually was a really big deal because Sundays were so, so hard. And I had a friend who said, hey, let's just go hike this mountain that's really close to my house on Sunday mornings before church. And there was a time in my life where I would have been like, no, that is totally breaking the Sabbath day. Not going to happen. But I said yes. And we started hiking on Sunday mornings before church. And church was really hard. But for some reason, hiking before church made church less hard. And I think there was something about connecting with a human and feeling like if God exists, then he exists in this space, this beautiful mountain. Like if God is good, it shows up here. Mm -hmm. And and I just think that you can breathe life into your spiritual practices or expand your definition of spiritual practices to include a lot of different things. It doesn't, I mean, I think certainly there's a lot of goodness in scripture studying and prayer. And I think there's a reason that those are basic answers that we always go back to, but we shouldn't limit God to those. Yeah, We should definitely think more expansively about about what spiritual practices are and then how we engage in scripture study and prayer. So I'm trying to think of like rethinking or reassessing frameworks that individuals have from a leadership standpoint. Cause I feel like the, the not so great example would be an individual comes in and they're like, okay, yeah, let's see. Kurt and Emily told me not to just default to like history resources. I'm going to help them rethink and be like, well, you're just thinking about it wrong. Have you, you tried this or that? Like sometimes we want to, give them our framework like oh well this actually works for me why don't you try my framework when it almost has to be this organic spiritual journey on a personal level rather than somebody forcing on you like you had to go to the book with a willing heart considering other frameworks in order for them to stick it wasn't that somebody just forced this this rethinking on you 
No, I had to be in a place to accept it. And I think that there's, when you're talking about leaders, I think that you have to really think about your baptismal covenants. That yes, you have a a baptismal covenant to stand as a witness of God and to testify, but you also have a baptismal covenant to mourn and bear somebody's burdens. So depending on where somebody is in their faith crisis, you might, they might be in a stage where frankly, they need you as a leader to mourn with them and to bear their burdens and to just say, yeah, this is really hard. Your frameworks have totally collapsed and you're doubting everything. This is really hard. And then a later, you know, when somebody has gone through that process and it just frankly takes time, then there could be a part where you're like, okay, well, let's think about things a little bit differently. Or have you thought about this? Or have you thought about this? Or, you know, a great way for a leader to introduce ideas is by giving somebody a book, honestly, because it's not confrontational. Yeah, yeah. And the person can pick it up. I've had so many people have just been like, have you thought about this book? And I'll pick it up and be like, oh yeah, this is really, really good. But I think if somebody would have like preached it to me to my face, I probably wouldn't have accepted it. So I think it just really depends on where that person is on the the spectrum of their faith crisis. Are they at the really tender raw stage where you Mm -hmm. just need somebody to sit there with you the whole time and not give you any solutions and just grieve with you? Or at the stage where maybe you're willing to think about things a little bit differently. Yeah. And so and it's tricky. And I don't I don't know if there's a really good answer about like what stage somebody is in. So but if yeah. they're probably bawling, that's probably the grieving very important <laughs> yeah. stage. Yeah. <laughs> that's probably a good indication. Yeah. And and this is the power, and I'll, I'll do a shameless plug for your book right here. That the power of your book is that as a leader, obviously, you know, you just think of the typical bishop. Like I would guess on average, the typical bishop has not had a dark night of the soul moment. They're very orthodox and they've sort of always sort of been in that. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm articulating this horribly, but I think people know what I mean. And so sometimes we're like, we want to offer our own experience. Like, oh yeah, I've had a hard time before. Like I've said a prayer that God didn't answer once and it maybe won't help, but to offer like, hey, look, here's a book that this wonderful lady, Emily wrote. And why don't you just read her experience and let's talk about what resonates from her experience with your experience and go from there, right? And and just keeping the, the dialogue going rather than fixing it or saying, you know, I'll read Emily's book because then we'll be good in a week, you know, it'll all be fixed. Yeah, I think that certainly if leaders can go in and my release study presence were so good about being in a place of not fixing, but just listening and encouraging. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I think that that's, actually a, a pretty impressive position because it's just like, you know, we trust that you're going to figure this out and we trust that God's going to help you get there. And I'm sure that there's a lot of leaders that have experienced really hard things, but maybe they don't know how to, how to articulate it well, or maybe they're not yeah. comfortable talking about it. So really just being in a place where you say, oh man, I'm really sorry. That sounds really, really, really hard. And I found that after I've gone through it, sometimes somebody will come and talk with me and I'll be like, I have to resist the urge to fix all their problems. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's just inherent. Like we just want to fix these problems. And instead you just have to sit with them a lot of time and have them tell their whole story and then figure out from there, what's the most useful path forward? Is it sitting with them longer? Is it giving them some resources? Is it just saying, hey, let's talk about this again another time. Let's go walk 10 miles and you can kind of work out some of this angst you're feeling. You know, you just have to figure out what's the best path forward. At yeah. Point. Yeah. And I, and I love that just, you know, because I think leaders are, they're reaching for just give me like, give me the five-step plan, Emily. Like, well, what, what should I say? What should I do? And, and there really isn't one, but I love these general concepts of like, I'm going to sit with them. I'm going to validate just how much this hurts, right? I'm not trying to remove their doubt or testify it away or all these things. And one of my favorite questions, that, and this works in so many relationships, I've worn it out in my marriage. I've used it with people who who are, you know, going through a trial of faith and whatnot, but just simply asking the question after you've connected with them, sat with them, just saying, what do you need? Right. And they may say, I don't know if I can come to church on Sunday. Okay. You know, you don't need to come to church on Sunday. Can I come visit you after? Can I sit with you later? Or, you know, like you're, you're just trying to understand what is it they need? Because if we don't ask that question, we'll make the assumption of, well, let me tell you, you know, you're praying wrong. Let me tell you what, how I pray. And you can pray mm-hmm. that way, right? So yeah, it's, it's so true. And Spencer Fluman gave this really wonderful talk at BYU Education Week a couple of years ago, and you can find it on YouTube. But he talks about, I think it's called like answering gospel questions. But his whole talk is like, you answer gospel questions by not answering gospel questions. You yeah. answer gospel questions by connecting with the person who is asking you the question and figuring out what their needs are. And, you know, so often we're focused on, I've got to give the right answer. But when we focus on us, we have forgotten the focus on, on the person who's asking the question. And so our job is to just get put, take ourselves out of the equation and instead focus on the questioner and focus on what their needs are. And don't put the pressure on yourself that you've got to like save their testimony or that 
you know, because God can do remarkable things. So let mm-hmm. God do God's work, whatever that means, and focus instead on the person who's asking the questions. Yeah. What would you say, you brought up your, you know, the mental health struggles that you had with depression, anxiety, like, is there any advice you'd give a leader to, like, I mean, how do you spot the mental health concern as opposed to just sincere questions and struggle? You know, like, obviously, right. I don't want to say they're two separate things, but the mental health plays a role in individual experiences. And, and obviously, you need to get them help to focus on depression and anxiety and those things from a, a, a professional. But sometimes they can be seen like you maybe miss that thinking, oh, they're just like, they're just really struggling now with faith when in reality, big There's chunk of that of is. Uh, yeah. Yes, so yes. any uh, what advice you have? Oh, gosh, I don't know if I have any advice. <laughs> I think I think it's really, I mean, the reason that I got help was because I had somebody who was experiencing depression say, I'm feeling something really similar. You may want to think about this. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't like a, you're depressed, you need to go get help. It was a, you know, I felt some of this too. And I'm sensing that maybe you may be feeling it. It was very like soft pedaled. And I don't know if I would have responded well if somebody would have come up and said, well, it sounds like you're depressed. You should go get some help. <laughs> I think I needed yeah. that soft pedal approach. So for leaders, I don't know the best way to do it. But I do think when it comes to mental health, probably the best option is to take a softer approach and to, to maybe say, you know, maybe, you know, I know that when I have talked with folks and I'm like, you know, now that I have experienced depression, a pretty deep depression, I'm like, oh, they've got some pretty clear thinking errors. They've got uh-huh. some pretty big cognitive distortions that they should go work out in therapy. But telling somebody that they've got cognitive distortions that they need to go work out in therapy is not going to be helpful for them. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, gently pushing sometimes can be really helpful. If you've had an experience where you've had a therapist that was helpful, you could say, you know what, I, you could maybe say that maybe that you had gotten some help at some point and you found it helpful. But yeah, I mean, yeah, it's tricky because mental health is not an easy when you're the person that is suffering, it is not easy to have somebody come to you and say, hey, you need therapy. You really have to get there on right. your own. Or right. you need to feel like you've gotten there on your own or else the therapy and medication aren't, aren't necessarily going to do all the, the good that they could possibly do. Yeah. And I think, you know, half the battle is just for a leader to realize that mental health can play a significant role in somebody's, you know, if they, they're sort of on this journey of a faith crisis or, or doubt, right? That just to know right. that that could be a factor, not that you have to identify it, but it's just, you know, good to have in your thinking as you're talking through right. just people. Right. And I had always thought that, you know, when I was first reading about in our own faith tradition, like, why, why can't I hear God? I'd always heard that, well, it's because you're depressed. You're depressed, you're anxious, so therefore you can't hear God. Hmm. But all of mine came after God seemed to have disappeared. Hmm. And so it was, so I think sometimes, you know, depression, anxiety can, maybe some ongoing depression, anxiety can cause uh, struggles with faith because you're just not feeling connected to heaven. But in my case, the fact that I wasn't feeling connected to God at all caused the mental health crisis. So I think it just kind of depends which way they go. And I think it's also important to realize that with mental health, it takes a really long time. Like mm-hmm. you're not just going to take a pill and then a pill and then just feel super happy or go to therapy once and be fine. It's mm-hmm. a long process and it takes a lot of different things. And sometimes it takes years. Yeah. And so we just have to be patient with people and that can be really hard. Yeah. And in your story, when, when it comes to depression, anxiety, did it, primarily manifest in the faith context or was it was work generally hard was being a mom hard i mean was it everywhere or just mainly in this area so it was certainly caused by my faith crisis but it certainly showed up everywhere i mean it just impacts uh-huh. everything that you do yeah. i mean i think you put a good face on but you're just walking around with a massive cloud over your head and just feeling like you're gonna have god show up and say you've got to do something really really hard that you don't want to do for god to come back and that feels just really horrible I think I realized I had anxiety that I was struggling with anxiety when I was actually meeting with a client in prison and I had a panic attack in the prison, which I had never had before. And I was able to recover pretty fast, but it was just like, this is different. This is new. This is something I need to figure out. (laughs) This is not good. I can't be having panic attacks in the prison. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, that's just our bodies will take us to that point of like, no, really, you, you really need to look at what's going on, you know, with right. in your mind and whatnot. Cause I'll do this again. If you don't, you know, if you want to right. panic, you know, right. So that's exactly yeah. right. Uh, you said something earlier, this, you said you were sending smoke signals to individuals that, that you are struggling. And th- that's really fascinating to me because sometimes at church, I like look around and, and I mean, there's some remarkable people in my ward, right. And friends. And, but at the same time, I'm like, okay, I know a good chunk of you are struggling with pornography, there's got to be a handful here who 
experience same sex attraction. You're not talking to anybody out of that mental health. Who are you? Like, I just want, Mm -hmm. like, I want people to feel like whether it's me or through the the leadership of my ward or whatnot, like there's a safe place to go and start to bring these things to the surface so they can be addressed because they're just going to keep festering. So like, tell me more about this sending smoke signals to people. Like, what did that look like and, and how did you do it? And then how can we as, as leaders or friends better pick up on these signals that others are sending us? All right. So this, so the darkest, hardest part was in 2020, which was pretty isolating. I mean, we were pretty isolated for yeah, a couple I, months there. Yeah. But in August or September of that year, my Release Society president asked me to send out, to write something that they could put in their Release Society newsletter. And I wrote something and I sent it to her. And I said, if this doesn't work, I can write something else. But basically, it said in there that I felt that my faith had crumbled and that I was holding on by holding on to spiritual memories. And it was more artistic than that and a little bit maybe more veiled than that. But that was essentially what it said. And she said, nope, this is fine. This is great. We'll send it out. And for those that read it and could hear what I was saying, those are the ones that called. They they got what I was saying. They got the underlying context of it and they called. And they talked. And um, so, yeah, sometimes we just have to get the... <laughs> mm-hmm. the my, my leader was amazing because she gave me... Uh, she allowed me to say something that was hard. Um, and that I think other leaders might have... Might, might, maybe not, might not have been so open to. But she allowed me to tell the sisters in this little spiel that I felt that my faith had crumbled and that I was barely holding on. And... Um, and then that just opened the door for others who could read it and see it for what it was to come and talk to me. So I, I'm not exactly sure how, how leaders can create spaces for it. I think a lot of it is just, you know, allowing people to be themselves, maybe modeling yeah. some vulnerability, um, being okay. Maybe if there's some things in church that are hard, but I know that when I have sat in lessons where people have been allowed to talk truthfully about their experiences, experiences with, um, hard experience with their kids or their job or their husband or faith, um, I've actually walked away feeling like I feel more connected to this person. I feel that they've, they've gone through some hard things and they figured some things out. And I, I just feel inspired by their example. Yeah. Wow. Like, and when I hear that, like, I, I, and again, it's hard to pinpoint, but obviously the leader, um, created some level of safety with you that you felt like yeah. that maybe, maybe this won't be published in the, the broader to the broader ward, but, but she'll hear it. Right. And then when, and then when she said, Oh yeah, this will great. We'll do it. Then it's like even more safety. Like, Oh wow. Like I, I'm in in a place where I can be heard and, and nobody runs away from me or screams or points fingers or whatnot. There's a a therapist once uh, I heard just this remarkable quote that has really changed my, my paradigm and thinking about this concept. But he said, there's no such thing as resistance, only a lack of safety. Like if you ever, so it's not that people, if in your word, if people, if you feel like are resisting bringing up, you know, their struggles with faith or their struggles with pornography or, you know, your struggles with whatever, it's not that they're just being, they're being, you know, hard to work with and resistant. It's maybe they don't feel safe enough to bring them up. And so that, that really causes a leader to reflect and think, wow, like what can I do to create more safety so that these things can be brought up more and then you know, this will identify the smoke signal and we'll be able to address it. It's tricky because I think that I had a good relationship with my Relief Society president. I thought she was a wonderful person. I knew that she had some things in her life that were hard too. Um, But then it took a lot of like, holy cow, this is hard. Push send, just push send, just push send. (laughs) It took me a while to actually work up the courage to actually send it. And her response that this is totally perfect just was wonderful. And I'm like, you know what, this is great. I can... I can be myself and this is great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, tell me, so at this point, I mean, you, you, you literally wrote the book on this concept now. Uh, I mean, it's easy to think, oh man, Emily's just probably awesome. I mean, she's probably walking with God every day, just having open conversations with the divine. Basically. Like, uh, yes. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, so, I mean, how do you describe your, where you're at now? Do you feel like that phase is over? There may be one in the future or, I mean, how do you articulate this journey at this point? So I still have no idea how to get answers from God on direct questions. Mm-hmm. Um, I just have no idea. And what I've done is I've released my need for control. Um, I realized that I was just trying to control God. Um, I've released that. And I've just come to a point where I'm like, you know, I will accept God in whatever way he chooses to show up in my life. 
And I did have, so basically I felt like my testimony before was this super intricate, massive castle. And now it's been cut down to this really, really tiny little foundation. And it's basically that God is good. I felt really strongly in this process writing um, that God is good. And that's basically it. But for some reason, and I can't explain why, that's enough. Mm-hmm. I can stay with God even though I can't figure out direct questions, even though I still have a lot of concerns about God's nature and things like that um, and how God interacts with people. But God is good, and and I can stay with God because of that. So, um, yeah, it's just it's it's been a really interesting experience, and I um I just feel that, you know, things are much simpler now in a lot of ways. And there's a lot more flexibility in my thinking. Um, Whenever I have something that comes up, I can, that's challenging and hard. Um, I can look at it with curiosity now instead of being completely turned upside down by it. And it's just been a process of having, um, it's just kind of hard to explain, but just, I guess, just letting God show up however God needs to. And, and trusting that that's okay and trusting in God in that way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was, it was interesting. I did, it took me six months to write this, um, the first draft of the book and I, uh, set it down in June of 2021. And I think the temples opened up in June or July of that year. So I went to an endowment session. It was the first time we'd been to the temple in like what, like almost 18 months at that point. And I sat in the endowment room and I walked in the temple saying, you know what? I am willing to accept God in whatever way, however he chooses to show up today. So if I feel nothing, I'm going to be okay with it. If I feel something, that would be fantastic. Um, But I'm willing to accept whatever he's deciding to give me today. And so I sat down in the endowment session and um, I actually had like a full on panic attack. Like it just all started. I don't know if mm. you've ever had one, but you know, it's like your skin, you like your skin is crawling and your heart races and you're just every cell in your body has to get out of the room. Like the only way you can survive is if you leave this room. And so I was sitting there in the endowment session and I was like, I can't do this. I can't sit through an endowment session feeling like this. I just can't. And, um, within just a few minutes, I suddenly had this incredible feeling of peace like it just kind of came out of nowhere. And it was just this deep, deep peace that I hadn't felt in a long time. And it was this just incredible realization that God was good and was aware. Like he was aware that here is this person who was freaking out in the back of the endowment room. And what did I need that day? I didn't need a revelation. I just needed to feel not completely panicked. And it was, it was incredible. So I hold on to that and say, God is aware. God is good. And, uh, I do not talk with angels. I, I don't have this amazing, like, God, tell me this. And he tells me that. <laughs> but I'm just willing to maybe see him in more places through daily life and um, just be more open to the ways that he can present himself. And that's been, it, it's, a, it's a different way of engaging with God than I have in the past, but it's more sustainable for me. Yeah, that's powerful. And I'm just like reflecting, like one big message I took away from reading your book would <clears throat> as I reflect on the principles of my own life is just the, the sanctifying nature of quietness. Right. And we have all these traditions and beliefs and behaviors that we, that we do in our, in our faith tradition. Um, and that there's a lot of, most of them are very sanctifying, right. Going to the temple and, you know, giving of yourself and serving, you know, all these, this, this busy type of discipleship. But I've noticed this in my personal experience, like even as a leader, like I remember being that leader feeling so much shame when like, I'm supposed to like receive this revelation for this ward of who's going to serve here or what we're supposed to do. And like nothing was coming. But in hindsight, I, it's like such a blessing to me to see that God was just like, like I've created you to make these decisions and to move forward. And, and you're going to learn more by messing up and making this call and that call, like, just go for it. You know, like, I'm not going to sit by your ear and whisper every step because where's the development in that. Right. And so I just love the concept of this, the sanctifying, sanctifying nature of, of quietness. And you've articulated that so well. So just send us off, like how, how, why, or how are you grateful 
for the quietness? <laughs> That's such a good question. I always hated people that got up and, well, hate's a strong word, but I didn't love it when people would get up in sacred meeting and say, I'm thankful for my trials, but I really am grateful for it. Um, I, I really do feel that through the quietness, I was able to get rid of a lot of my small ideas about God. And I was actually able to realize how my ideas about my faith had actually cabined my faith. So it was prevented from growing in really necessary ways. And I wouldn't wish depression and anxiety on anyone, but it was actually, I learned a lot of really good things about myself and about my brain and about my body and how I reacted and about relationships. I learned so much going through that process. So it's been, um, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm a better person today than I was three or four years ago when I was in a space of just feeling super confident about my faith, super confident about God and that I knew everything that was going on. And now I'm in a space where I'm okay with being uncertain about it. I'm okay with ambiguity. I'm okay with, with not knowing. And, um, and it just feels better. It feels a lot better. It, uh, I, I, it's just, it's a much better, healthier place to be. That concludes this episode of the Leading Saints podcast. Hey, listen, would you do me a favor? You know, everybody's got that friend who listens to a ton of podcasts, and maybe they aren't aware of Leading Saints. So would you mind taking the link of this episode or another episode of Leading Saints and just texting it to that friend? You know who I'm talking about, the friend who always listens to podcasts and is always telling you about different podcasts. Well, it's your turn to tell that friend about Leading Saints. So share it. We'd also love to hear from you. If you have any perspective or thought on this episode, you can go to leadingsaints.org and actually leave a comment on the episode page or reach out to us at leadingsaints.org contact. Remember to access the Questioning Saints library for 14 days. Visit leadingsaints.org 14. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness. The loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away, and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.